how to understand Paul's Midrash in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. What is Halakhic Midrash, that I will now call legal Midrash for simplicity? The word Midrash comes from the Hebrew darash, which means to search diligently for something that is not in plain sight. A verse in Deuteronomy captures the essence of the mysterious nature of God and his word. You will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search, and that's our word, darash. Search diligently for him with all your heart and all your soul. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29. God is not in plain sight, but those with a heart to grow close to him can draw near. As I worked to understand these methods of Midrash, I pored over all the academic literature I could find, much of it written by Jewish scholars. However, I could not make sense of what I was reading because I did not have a beginning foundation for the principles of Midrash. Fortunately, I discovered something I could understand. An Israeli legal scholar, Menachem Elon, had written a book, later expanded to four volumes, for Israeli law students. Menachem was a professor of law at Hebrew University who was later appointed to the Israeli Supreme Court. In his book, HaTorah HaIvrit, Menachem explains the methods of Midrash that the Talmud claims were used by the great sage Hillel. Hillel lived shortly before the time of Paul, and Menachem gives examples from the Talmud of how these methods are used. When I applied this new understanding of legal Midrash to my study of Paul, I could see that Paul was using these methods to uncover from Scripture its depth of meaning. People in ancient Israel who had been trained in these ancient methods would have used them when there were questions that the plain and simple meaning of Scripture did not reveal. Those who were not trained in how to use these methods would bring their questions to the masters and would listen intently to their teachings. What, then, were Paul's questions that led him to search with methods of Midrash? First, Paul was convinced that Yeshua was God's promised Messiah, so he was asking, what do scriptures say about those Jews who do not believe in Yeshua? Two, Paul was also convinced that Gentile believers in Christ now belong to God through their faith in his Son, so he was asking, since God shows no partiality among his people, will he judge Gentile believers, the same way he is judging the children of Israel? Three, since God declares that he is Israel's father and they are his firstborn son, Paul must have been asking, what is God's ultimate plan for all the children of Israel and how is this being carried out? We will now consider the mechanics of the first Midrash. To conduct the Midrash, Paul takes two verses from the Hebrew scriptures that are legally and conceptually similar, and then he conducts an analogy that examines the relationship between these two verses. An analogy compares one thing with another to draw a conclusion. From the analogy, Paul can cover, uncover meaning that is not in the plain and simple words, but nevertheless has been embedded in the depth of scripture by God. In Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, you will find not two, but four quotations, thus creating two separate but connected Midrashic arguments. In the first Midrash, Paul begins with two verses from Scripture. 
Though Isaac, your through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That's Romans 9, 7, citing Genesis 21, 12. And the second verse, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. That's Romans 9, verse 9, citing Genesis 18, 10. Before I share my thoughts, I would like to comment on through Isaac, your descendants will be named. In the ancient world, the one who carried on the name would be the next leader of the clan or tribe, and he would inherit the birthright of leadership. Thus, Ishmael, the firstborn son of Abraham, who was entitled to the birthright, lost it, and the inheritance of the birthright was given to Isaac. So what makes the first two verses legally and conceptually similar? They are both about Isaac, who has a special status. Isaac was a miracle baby, born by God's promise, who will carry on the name of Abraham as the next leader of his people. He will inherit the birthright. What, then, is the analogy or relationship between the two verses? We will let Paul explain. He will present what he has uncovered with a provocative artistic commentary that forces us to search the Hebrew scriptures, not in the Greek style that delivers a plain explanation, but in the Hebraic way that requires work to unravel Paul's artistry of language. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. You are certainly drawn to the repetition of children, in the Midrash, we see that Isaac is the child of promise, and God is selecting others to be children of promise as well. Children of promise is portrayed in contrast to children of the flesh. Flesh represents the ways of the world. So children of promise are walking in the ways of God, whereas children of the flesh are walking in the ways of the world. We will now leave Isaac and turn to Ishmael in Paul's Midrash. Ishmael is not a child of promise like Isaac, so he is a child of the flesh. Even though Ishmael is Abraham's firstborn son, he is not worthy to carry on the name as the next leader of Abraham's people. More important to the Midrash, Paul declares that the children of promise are not descendants of Abraham, but children of God. Thus, all the children of Israel are descended from Abraham, but those Israelites who are children of the flesh are not metaphorically children of God. I caution you not to take this statement literally because Paul's Midrash is using artistic language to draw his audience, the Jewish believers in Rome, to a difficult conclusion that will contradict their traditional thinking. At this point in Paul's Midrash, we can only see that there is something special about the children of promise. We will now follow Paul's trail and relate Isaac and Ishmael to the Midrash in the Midrash to those Jews in Rome whom Paul was addressing in Romans 9 to 11. The Jewish believers in Rome were like Ishmael, walking in the ways of the flesh. They were caught up in their tradition about the chosen and elevated status of the Israelites and were insisting that Gentile believers become Jews by circumcision as the sign of the covenant and knowledge of the law as the way to walk in righteousness. Paul has taken two verses from the Hebrew scriptures that are legally and conceptually similar, Genesis 21:12 and Genesis 18:10. They both talk about Isaac, who received a special kind of status. He was born by promise, and he was selected by God to inherit the birthright. He would not only carry on the name of Abraham, but more important to the Midrash, he would carry on the name of God as a child born from God's promise. 
as God explained in his artistic Midrash, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise. Isaac would inherit a role of leadership that required righteous and obedient submission as God's son. God did not select Ishmael. Paul is using bitey words, biting words of irony to portray those Jews in Rome as not worthy of selection by God in the same way that God passed over Ishmael. What is the purpose of God's selection? The selection is not for salvation, as Christian theology refers to those who are saved, meaning those who belong to God with the promise of eternal life. All the Jews belong to God. Having been born to the special inheritance of the birthright as God's firstborn son that we see in Exodus 4.22. However, each individual Jew must prove himself or herself worthy of this special leadership role or God will only select others to inherit the birthright. Those who are worthy of this leadership position are called a remnant. Let us return now to that puzzling verse about children to see Paul's continuing use of linguistic artistry. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. In the New Testament Greek language, there is only one word for children, which is techna. This is the word that Paul repeats three times in Romans 9, 8. However, Paul has also cited two verses from the Hebrew scriptures, and each one uses a different Hebrew word with slightly different nuances of meaning. First we read, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Descendants is the Hebrew zerah, which means seed or descendants. Then we read, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Son is the Hebrew word ben. The plural is banim. So we have seed or descendants that are offspring of a father and sons who have a special relationship with the father. Paul's play on word is similar to what we saw with they are not Israel who they are not all Israel who are from Israel. In that earlier declaration the name Israel had two meanings. One represented Jacob whose name was changed to Israel and the other referred to all the people of Israel. Here the word children also has two meanings. Descendants by birth and sons with a special relationship to the father. Now listen to Romans 9, 8, where I have added the, the two meanings of children. It is not the descendants of the flesh who are sons of God, that's Jewish believers in Rome, but the sons of the promise are regarded as descendants, and that's Gentile believers in Christ. This biting irony has two messages. Both are directed against the Jewish believers in Rome who are teaching the law as the way to righteousness instead of walking by the guiding spirit of God through their faith in Christ. Paul's first message declares that the Jews are physical descendants of Abraham, which is true, but they are not acting like sons, so they are not worthy of the birthright. Paul's second message states that the Gentile believers are not physical descendants, which is true, <laughs> But God now regards them as physical descendants because of their faith in his son. God has given them the gift of his Holy Spirit so they can act like sons and walk in righteousness. I suggest that Paul was also implying with sarcastic irony a third Hebrew word for children using typical Hebraic artistry of language. What accusation does Paul deliver with an ironic play on words? The Jewish believers in Rome were acting like Yiladim, 
which is the word for little children, instead of banim, sons who would carry on the name through their inheritance of the birthright. These little children were puffed up with pride and their elevated status. They had been told by God that they were God's chosen people. Their fleshly circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God had made with them, and God had given them his inspired word in the Hebrew scriptures. Yet Paul was deflating their pride by declaring that Gentile believers in Christ were children of promise like Isaac, and God now regarded them as seed or descendants, not only of Abraham, but also of God. God had circumcised the hearts of Gentile believers and had written the law on their hearts so they could walk in righteousness by their love and faith in Christ. If you have listened carefully to this explanation of Paul's beginning Midrash in Romans 9, 6-13, I applaud you. You are a serious student of the Bible. But there is another challenge. Paul presented a second but related Midrashic argument that I am going to explain in the next presentation. So bear with me and let's work the second Midrashic passage together. <laughs>